You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 269. Absorb what is useful, discard what is not, add what is uniquely your own. Bruce Lee. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft. It's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro-budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie's going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Have you ever wanted to learn from a Hollywood blockbuster screenwriter or even an Oscar winner? Well, I wanted to put together a free three-day screenwriting video series taught by legendary screenwriters David Goyer, from who wrote The Dark Knight, Nia Valdouris, who wrote The Big Fat Greek Wedding, Oscar-winning Callie Corey, who wrote Thelma and Louise, and Oscar winner Paul Haggis, who wrote Casino Royale. If you want access to this free class, head over to bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash free. Well, guys, you are in for a treat. If you are a fan of 80s films, action, like exploitation films, this is the episode for you. Today we are talking to the writer-director, Sam Furstenberg. Now, Sam was at the very beginning of the rise of Canon Film, the legendary movie studio that brought us uh, amazing, amazing films in the 80s, including the Ninja movie. You know, the, the movies about ninjas and things were all basically brought in by Canon Films. And Sam was responsible for directing one of their biggest ninja movies ever, which was American Ninja. Now, for anybody living in the 80s or early 90s, American Ninja, Michael Dudikoff, was just the thing. It was insane to watch. He also directed Revenge of the Ninja, Ninja 3, and brought us one of the greatest titles in movie history, Break Into the Electric Boogaloo, the sequel to the breakout breakdancing hit, Break In, which, again, if you were around in the 80s, you knew how big of a deal that was. Now, Sam and I talked all about the beginnings of his career, how he got involved with Canon Films and the producers there, and so, so much more. So this is just a fun, fun, fun episode. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Sam Furstenberg. I'd like to welcome to the show Sam Furstenberg. How are you doing, Sam? Excellent, thank you. I'm glad to be with you. Thank you so much for for reaching out to me. I was I was excited when I got your email. I'm like, oh my god, I gotta talk to Sam. I gotta I gotta get into the into the the stories. I'm sure you have one or two stories about your time 
at Canon and all of your directing and filmmaking career throughout the 80s, 90s, and even in the 70s as well. Uh, but the but specifically, we're going to focus on the 80s and 90s and a lot of the cool stuff you did back in those days. Uh, but before we get started, how did you get started in this business? Uh, I, I was uh, one of those kids who love uh, movies, love cinemas. And uh, actually, one of the, you know, there's always this one kid who goes and sees the movies and comes back to the neighborhood and tells the movie to the other kids. So this was me. <laughs> <laughs> so the, 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 the answer, I don't know. The, the love to cinema is, uh, I don't know where it comes in, the love of storytelling. Mm -hmm. But uh, I grew up in uh, Israel. I'm from Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And I had no knowledge. Uh, we actually, we didn't have television even then when I was a kid in the 50s. And uh, when I finished uh, high school and the mandatory uh, service in the military in Israel, so by the time I finished at uh, 21, I decided I'm going to Hollywood to study film, to learn how to make movies. <laughs> so that, that's basically it. I, 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 I traveled from uh, Israel to Los Angeles and enrolled in film school. And uh, I started to learn how how you make film. Uh, luckily or accidentally or luckily, I met a famous Israeli producer, Menachem Golan, uh, that in Israel he was very famous. And I met him here, uh, here in uh, Los Angeles in Hollywood. And and I started working in, in, in with him, with other movies, all kind of uh, odd jobs, uh, assistant, helper, grip, uh, electric or anything in the beginning so that's how i started into the business of movie making so you started with with uh with him and started just doing any little odd jobs and he was already was he uh, for everyone listening um he started he was one of the co-founders of the legendary canon films correct but the uh what, what uh, but that time was uh, was still uh, 1972, 1973, they were, right. there was no connection between him and Canon at the time. Okay. He, he was producing movies in Israel together with his cousin, Yoram Globus, and they came here to Hollywood. They sold the movie, Casablan, and they, they created a small company. The name of the company was Ameri Euro Picture, and they produced the movie. He directed, they produced the movie with the Tony Cortez. Uh, was called Lepke, a gangster movie. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, in the 70s, you know, they had a company in Israel, Noah Film, and they had this little company, uh, uh, Amer Euro Picture, that produced Lepke, then produced another movie with Robert Shaw, Diamonds, and few little movies. They only purchased, they purchased Canon. They did not uh, establish Canon. Canon was at a company in New York, uh, uh, a small distribution and sales company of movies in, in uh, New York. And they purchased the company, I believe, in, in the beginning of the 80s, 1979, 1980. They purchased, they took over this company, Canon, and then they took it all and they took it and made it into a huge company. Right. So, as in, so what, but what was Canon doing prior to them getting it? I mean, they were just just a normal small little distributor, right? They weren't doing genre yeah, stuff. Correct. They were they were uh, producers and distributors. They produced some movies. The base was in Israel, in Tel Aviv. This was the base, mm -hmm. and they produced a lot of Israeli movies. They made a lot of local Hebrew speaking uh, movies. Uh, 
in conjunction with you know, making this movie, uh, let's say, the, the Dimension, Lepke, Diamonds with Robert Shaw. I was assistant director in the movie Diamond. They produced a movie which is called The Passover Plot. So a mixture of Israeli movies and ki some kind of international movies, English-speaking international movies, but they were very good at sales. Mm -hmm. they, used, uh, they used to go every year to Cannes Film Festival and to all the other film festival and film market and sell those movies that they produced. And, and they became very knowledgeable and, and, and uh, with this process of selling movie internationally uh, up to this point. They always had a dream. Both of them always had a dream to go to Hollywood one day to make it in Hollywood. And eventually they, they did. So the opportunity was they produced in Israel kind of successful movie, uh, Operation Thunderbolt, about the Ante Antebe operation. Mm -hmm. And they sold it to one of the major studios here. And I guess, my guess is with the money of the sale, they bought this company, uh, Canon. They also had another hit, it was Lemon Pepsicle. It was a Hebrew-speaking yeah. movie that produced by, uh, that direct, they produced, was directed by Boaz Davidson, and also a movie that made a lot of money. So I guess that with the profits of both of those movies, they, they were able to buy or to take over Canon. So how did they, how did they start, um, since you were basically there working with them, how did they make the decision to start going into genre? Because everything you're telling me right now is none of it's really genre. Yeah, maybe a gangster movie here and there, but not genre as we knew it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Co correct, correct. Uh, they, they, uh, when they produced movies in, in Israel, they were mainly local comedy that catered to the local audience. Mm -hmm. uh, very much like uh, movies in Turkey or in, in, in Greece or in, uh, uh, in Egypt. Th those kind of local comedies that deal with local uh, subjects. And then uh, they kind of always flirted with action a little bit. Uh, as I say, Operation Thunderbolt was a big action movie, actually, military action. Uh, but they had the uh, espionage movies. Yeah. They flirted with action. When they came to, uh, when they took over um, Canon, it was in the 80s, 1980s, 1981. What was very popular at the time here in, in uh, Hollywood for the low-budget independent is to make low-budget horror pictures. Mm -hmm. This was the standard. There were many, many of them done. Very low budget, you know. Not not, not much has not much has changed. Yeah. Not uh, much has changed. Influenced <laughs> by the source, uh, by the, the sorcerer, but other movies, uh, by the Exorcist. Uh, so, mm -hmm. Sorry, uh, influenced by the movie The Exorcist, but others. You know, there, there were so many, and and Canon, those two uh, partners and cousins, they decided to go this route of low budget, and because it's really cheap to make uh, horror pictures. But they were not very successful in terms of uh, it was not part of their culture. They didn't grow up in, in America. The horror picture is a very American genre. It's a very specific American genre, which is not uh, uh, definitely not at that, at that time uh, was made in other countries around the world. Mm -hmm. And but they, they it didn't 
really catch because they, they, they didn't understand the essence. They didn't, they didn't grow up with a horror picture. So they, they decided at some point to switch to action. And their first, the first action movie they produced was called Enter the Ninja. So they so where did where did the ninja come from? Because essentially they popularized the concept of a ninja in America. I mean, I was I dressed as a ninja. I went to ninja school. I was at throwing knives. I mean, I did nunchucks. I mean, yeah, there's Bruce Lee with nunchucks, but the ninja was they brought it to America. Definitely. So uh, next, you know, next to the horror picture, there was a, 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 a another genre floating around. Of course, you had from Hong Kong, the, the martial art movie, the Hong Kong, the Chinese Hong Kong martial art movies, which we used to call them karate movies or kung fu movies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, but there was a beginning, Chuck Norris, uh, Octagon, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and then Enter the Dragon with Bruce Lee. So there was this other genre, martial art, going uh, parallel to the... <laughs> to the horror pictures, but not as big, you know. Mm -hmm. And there were a few. And uh, one day, uh, Menachem Golan used to, to hear ideas. People came to him with scripts and idea. And the story is, the legend is, I did not witness it, that one day Mike Stone walked into the office. And Mike Stone one of the, was one of the champions, uh, you know, as well as Chuck Norris and uh, Tadashi and uh, Bruce Lee. And, and he pitched to Menachem Golan this idea to make a movie about Ninja. And, uh, and now Ninja was, a, as you say, was a novel idea, was a different idea, because uh, we all knew about samurai movies. We, you know, uh, the Kurosawa. enthusiasts uh, have yeah. seen uh, Akira Kurosawa, Seven Samurai, Yojimbo, mm -hmm. and, and we all knew about uh, the Americans' uh, martial art movie. Enter the Dragon was the big one. And, but Ninja, nobody ever heard. It's a, a specific, you know, subgenre of the, in Japan, in the Japanese mythology of martial art, in the Japanese culture. And nobody ever thought. Later on, I found out that here and there in a Hong Kong movies, there was some appearance of a ninja. A ninja here. Always as bad guys. Always. Bad guys. Sure. And here and there. Very, very few. Very uh, sparse. But, uh, here, uh, Mike Stone uh, pitched to Menachem Golan an idea. He probably had a story, storyline. I wasn't there. And Menachem Golan loved it. And he said, okay, that's, I understand. Action for the international market, that's something that I understand. And they produced, and they went to the, they did it, they filming it in the Philippines. They filmed it in the Philippines. And they did it and came back editing. And they sold it well. Pretty well, much. They, they sold it in a much better way than uh, they sold that they did with the, the horse. <laughs> yeah, right. So I, I guess you know I I'm trying to play to to, to play to be in his brain. So I mm -hmm. guess they, they decided okay, we know what we don't want to do. We we understand we can do uh, action and this new gimmick for them it was a gimmick. Ninja works. People buy it. You know the buyers buy it. It was uh, Franco Nero was the star of Enter the Ninja, mm -hmm. and Shokasugi was the villain, and Mike Stone choreographed the fight, uh, and 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 suddenly it was you know the the, the audiences around the, around the world, not only Nero, suddenly they saw this novel new idea Ninja. It's a nice gimmick. It's a nice has a nice look. The, the, 
the wardrobe. The yeah, it was it was very. Car, oh my god, when you're a kid, this when was you're the beginning. When so you're yeah. of, this is the legend. This is the story. How Mike Stone, Nachem Golan, and how it was born. Now the funny thing is, is when you're a child. I mean, especially a kid growing up in the '80s, and you see a ninja for the first time, and you see the throwing star and the sword, and it's like. Oh my! It was just, it was just a revelation. But I mean, nowadays there's so much. I mean, we you know nowadays they have a thousand things, but back then there wasn't anything like that. Especially not a thing on TV, no movies. It was a it was a thing. And I think what I mean, I, and I think this is obvious. Cannon's explosion in the in the world marketplace had to do also with the timing of the home video market, which that they fed off of each other and exploded. Correct. Definitely. So remember, Canon eventually, when we are looking in hindsight, became the biggest of the independent company, but it, yeah. companies, but it was not alone. There was a bunch of those companies, uh, Shapiro Glickenhaus, AM Entertainment, uh, Corelco, uh, and many, many more. And all of them were producing, some of them uh, specialized in horror only, some of them specialized in, uh, in kind of comedies. Uh, yeah. Some of them specialize in what they used to call TNA movies. Right. So, yeah, softcore, yeah, softcore, <laughs> so erotica. Yeah. Companies, there were many of them, and suddenly came in a new market, a new source of movie, which was the home video market, the rental. People went to the corner stores, they rented the movies. The major studios did not pay attention to this potential, right. to this money. They were scared. First. And, but those little companies, immediately they realized for them it was a gold mine. And they started to produce movies and they sold it. So there was money. There was no problem. The risk was very low. So this was the beginning of the 80s. They, they took very low risk. And, and worldwide, not only here in the North America, not only in the United States, Canada, but worldwide, those, those, uh, uh, this uh, industry of renting uh, cassettes to home was was good, and uh, you know the the shops that had to buy those cassettes they had to pay a lot of money. Oh, I, I I I worked them. at them. I worked How at a video store. Oh yeah, retail dollars, hundred twenty dollars. Oh, I think wholesale we used to pay seventy five sixty to seventy five bucks for wholesale. Retail was a hundred hundred twenty five bucks. At least four copies of every movie. So. This is before Blockbuster bought a thousand copies of everything right, and, did, right. so and it rent was share. A good, it was good a business. So oh. Canon thrived because of this, because of this money, because of this market, and they started to to produce more and more movies to the point that at some years they made about thirty or forty movies a year. Jesus, and it was it's, it's so funny too because. I remember I worked in the video store 88 to 92. So I was right in the middle of the heyday of video stores. There were no DVDs, uh, any of that stuff. But I remember because I was the manager, I, you know, we'd, buy, we'd buy you know four copies of American Ninja. Yeah. Each one of those would make probably on, on, on return 400 bucks, 500 bucks per. And then sometimes you would get a movie like Faces of Death which would which give you $2,000 return because everybody wanted to rent that one. But it was true. Our store was full of the Orion Pictures and Canon and Caraco. And then slowly the studios figured out. They're like, oh, maybe we should start throwing our movies up on there again. It's exactly what happened. Eventually the major studios did. 
they realize they say, why are they making the money when we can make the money? We have the power. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. At, you know, at the beginning of the 80s, the, the, the mindset of the studio was theater, theatrical. <laughs> you know, they make money in theaters, then they sell it to television, to networks. They make a little bit more money. Mm-hmm. They sell it to the airlines. They make a little bit more money with the airlines. But then they realize, they say, what, what's happening here? <laughs> They're making good money uh, over there with the, with the cassette, with the home video. Let's, let's move in. And, and, and then you had Predator. Then you had True oh. Life. Oh, God. They, they decided, let's make those the same movies, a little bit bigger budget. Bigger stars. Better quality. And and then we will, <laughs> yeah, we'll take over this uh, industry. Right. That's when the diehards and the Lethal Weapons and all right. of the all those those were all essentially genre movies, but with genre with a with a better budget, with a bigger budget, with bigger budgets. Exactly. It, it, I mean, it was. I look back on those days very fondly. Working as, and everyone listening to the show knows how much I loved working in my video store. And I worked. Uh, I worked two video stores. I worked at a movie theater for a two weeks and I quit because uh, I, I hated cleaning up the popcorn. Uh, <laughs> I'm, the video store was a much better gig. <laughs> but, but Alex, uh, the, the studio is rigid, more or less. You know, right. There are so many departments. So when studio make a movie, it's rigid. The independent companies at the time in the 80s, they went crazy because there was so much money. There's so many young oh, so much co- young so, creators. Oh, yeah. And basically, they told the, the directors, you guys go and do whatever you want. <laughs> we don't have time to control you and to bother you. Right. So, Toby Hooper, Josito, Sheldon, Aladdish. Yeah, yeah you guys, went, you <laughs> basically had... Into the, into the scene, and they started to make Friday the 13th, whatever, and eventually also... Um, uh, Got picked up. Yeah, all bigger of those movies came out of this big, bigger idea. Right, like Texas it. Chainsaw Massacre and all these kind Chainsaw of stuff. Chainsaw Massacre, because Terminator it, came out of this genre. Yeah, exactly. With Jim Cameron, it, it, it's it was it was really a fun, interesting time because it was just those always the time when when the studios <laughs> are in trouble and they can't figure out or they have to fill a lot of content. They give a lot of freedom and creativity to the creators. It happened in the seventies. Uh, with the Scorsese, then Spielberg's the world, movie. right, and 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 um, Easy Rider. But in the '80s, there was so much need for content. I remember we used to be only able to buy two to three movies a week. That's all. That was all that was being released. Yeah. Like that was it. And then now, I mean, it's there's three movies a minute being released. <laughs> and that was the other thing too for people listening. And like you were saying that the studios are rigid. It took them thir- twelve years. Before they opened up a streaming service after Netflix launched, same thing. Same exactly. Same. So Netflix made all the money for a decade, got right. a huge head start on them, and now they have a major competitor that they're right. losing talent to creativity. Actors are all losing them to Netflix because Netflix was ahead. It really is. It's a. It's a. It's a tide that repeats itself. The only thing was really we were lucky. There was there was good money at the time in the eighties. Oh. I mean, it was not the budget. The movies that we made are not were not tremendous budget, but was what, not bad. You what know? are you talking about? Like a couple, two, three million in that time? Yeah, because if you take American Ninja, for instance, yeah, we shot it nine weeks, six day week, with two units. Some, some nine some weeks. Two units. Nine weeks. Nine weeks. 
nine weeks of six days, nine weeks so f- with two unit, two full units. That's unheard of. One additional <laughs> unit. So right. we have full units. The crew was huge, like 250 people. We had anything we wanted. So they were really medium budget. And the streaming don't have this, you know, unless, unless they make a, a, a event movie or television series, they, they don't give those budgets. And today, uh, young filmmakers have to make movies in five weeks, four weeks. Five days. Uh, <laughs> five days. You're right. It's, it's, it's remarkable. But, I mean, also back then, the, the barrier to entry was the technology. It was so expensive to own any of the technology to make it, where now it's not about technology. It's more, now it's about distribution. It's about actually getting your stuff seen. I always tell people in the 80s, if you finished a movie – Good, bad, or indifferent. You made money with it. You sold it. It was More sold. Like, yeah. If you figured, if you shot a 35 millimeter movie, finished it, it went into the theaters, and then when the whole media market hit, it definitely went. I mean, I saw stuff that I'm like, how did this get produced? <laughs> so Golan is a very funny uh, quote. I think in the movie Electric Google, the, the Secret of Canon, he said, <laughs> and they quoted him, but it was a quote from the 80s. He said, I don't, if, if you make a movie and you don't make a money, you're probably stupid. I don't understand how you cannot make money. <laughs> well, but he had, a, so his business model was low budget, you know, so we're talking, I mean, in, in, in one million to three million dollars, which, right. yeah, or, and above a little bit, depending on yeah, how big it was. Even more, uh, Electric Boogaloo was like six million dollars. Oh, right? yeah, but the, but the, you had a huge hit with Break-In, the first yeah, one, because, yeah, and yeah, then... Yeah. It was a circumstance. Right? And then, of course, he did Masters of the Universe, which was a whole other thing. That's a whole it other was conversation. Another, another level of canon, which it's not exactly what we are talking about. Right? Sure. But that was yeah, like, I think that was their but, heyday. But they had this model of, you know, the they they invented I don't know they invented the so-called pre-sale. They used also, to create really? a lot so of the... posters, uh-huh. took them to the marketplace, took them right. to their distributors, and and offer them this poster, that poster, this idea, even before they had a script. If they saw that the buyer, you know, kind of liked it, here is a poster with Chuck Norris. You like it? They came back to the office, they pre-sold it, and then they came to the office, they rushly. In a rush way, they wrote a script and they went and made a movie to fulfill the promise of the poster. And <laughs> so, so they're the pre-sale concept. So they came they up with pre-sale. To, they knew how much money to invest on the, in the movie according to the pre-sales, to the amount of money. So they, they're the ones that came up with pre-sales? Yeah. I had no idea that Canon was the guy. Those guys were the ones. Because when I heard about the pre-sales, I mean, pre-sales now are, are rare. Uh, there, there, but it does happen, especially if you have a relationship with the buyers and you're longstanding. But generally, pre, I mean, because before you literally could go to AFM with a poster. That's what they did. Open up a shop and go, do you want this new movie with with, with Michael Dudikoff in it? Great. Uh, $50,000 for your territory. $100,000 for your territory. $250,000 for Germany. And, and, yes. and they would sell it up. So they came home. They're like, okay. We could invest, uh, let's invest a million dollars because we have a million five in, in pre-sales. And then we also have other places we can make some more money off of it. I mean, it's a win-win. <laughs> right, right. This was, this was the model. This was the system. Beside the uh, Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus, there was another partner, Danny Dimbord. He was the head of sales. And they kind of invented it. Everybody adapted the system, all the independent companies of uh, pre-selling. 
But yes, there was so much need for product all over the world for the for this new emerging mar market of uh, home video. Uh, you know, it was revolutionary for young people to, today. It's hard to understand when you see the streaming. The idea that you can take a cassette, bring it home, eh. start the movie, whatever you want, you can pause it, go to rewind the it, rewind it, rewind it. It was revolutionary. It's hard today. Today it's hard to to grasp how no, revolutionary it was. Right. I I literally had to go see Ghostbusters thirty four times in the theater when I when it came out as a kid because but when the VHS came out, I bought it. Uh, and I watched it a million times at home and I would stop it. I would rewind it. I could play it back. I could play my the scene. I loved again. Again, it was something that, you know, kids today really don't understand because now they're like, well, I just open up my phone and everything's that's ever been made is accessible to my fingertips. Mm -hmm. I, I, it was revolutionary and people love that idea. And then you can go out and rent two, three, four oh. movies a weekend. And, or something. and it was equal in, in Los Angeles. Yep, and in some small village in Africa, same right. thing. Every right. little town in Africa in had the Far East had a little hat with a rent cassette. Uh, the video hat. The video hat is the, is the machine, you know. So the village had a machine, or every home, and the machines were not expensive. It was a cheap. It was cheap amazing. Product. It was, it, and I and I try to explain to people too. Back in, and we're still only talking in the VHS days when DVD hit. It was oh, even yeah. cheaper to make things, yeah. and 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 then cheaper. it was cheaper to produce the, the 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 DVDs than it was to create the VHSs. You could you could make a thousand of them in a minute, and it used to take a lot longer to do VHSs. And I told people, I'm like, that's why Sniper Seven, Eight, and Nine were pre-made and released because they knew they were going to make five or six million dollars in the DVD market. But then in 05, 06, it started to dwindle and then streaming came along and then it, it destroyed it destroyed that market we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show and i think that everyone i think it was basically from 1980 to, to early 2000s it was a gold mine Everybody was making right. money we call uh, uh, the, the the type of movies that we are talking about Friday the 13th, uh, American Ninja, we are calling them the genre, low-budget independent movies of the 80s and the first half of the 90s. Right. So th this was the era. 15 before. years. And then the studios realized it's not, it was not the end of the, 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 this industry, but the studios started to take over in the middle of the 90s. And they, st they, came, they started to come up with bigger budget, Predator, etc. Uh, true lies uh, Terminator so now, 2 yeah all they, those things yeah. they started to take over the market of course they have more power more, more financial power better product etc eventually they took over and they created the relationship with Blockbuster and uh, and it was and it, it became it, a, a move, uh, became a business of bigger budget uh, movies now pushed away pushed away the, the 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 smaller companies right exactly that's why orion went under at that time yeah. and, and canon eventually all of them all of them everybody international my god but they were making carol Car was making two uh terminator 2 total mm -hmm. recall you know yes. orion was doing robocop and won four or five oscars in the course of a decade i mean it was 
And Corelco made some bigger, big movies. Oh, huge movies they made. Yeah, absolutely. So American big Ninja. Attraction. So so American Ninja, which I, I just, I you know, when I heard, first of all, the Ninja came out and you did Revenge of the Ninja uh, came out and then the Ninja started to come out. But then American Ninja, you're like, wait a minute, mm-hmm. an American Ninja? And it was like a mind blowing thing. You're like, holy cow. And Michael Dudikoff is up there and he's doing, how did you get, how did, how did American Ninja come out? Was that your idea? How did that come? Not, not my idea. So we, uh, so they made Enter the Ninja. Let's just uh, talk a little bit about the history of the Ninja. Uh, the company made Enter the Ninja and the, the the movie did pretty well, you know, moderately well. And they immediately they wanted a sequel. They wanted to make Revenge of the Ninja. They liked Shokasugi very much. He was the villain in Enter the Ninja. And But the Menachem Golan, which directed Enter the Ninja, did not want, you know, the company was starting to take off and he was busy. He didn't want to do the sequel. So he turned to me. I just finished uh, uh, directing a movie that I sold to Canon. This was the beginning of Canon, 1982. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just sold to them a movie, One More Chance, that I, I directed and produced. And, and they turned to me and said, would you direct this? Of course, we had relationship, as I told you. I was his assistant director. I was assistant director in the company for, mm-hmm. for a while. And, 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 and here they saw that I can make a movie. I, uh, and, uh, this was this One More Chance movie. With Kirstie Alley, by the way, the first, yeah, the first yeah. movie that she did, Kirstie Alley, and 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 they turned to me and said, "Would you direct the sequel?" Okay, so we made Revenge of the Ninja with Shokasugi. He was the star. It was uh, they liked it. They, it was kind of successful. They wanted uh, no. It was for them. It was more than successful. It was the first movie that MGM picked up. It was the first movie from Canon that a major company picked up for distribution, Revenge of the Ninja, because it was distributed by MGM. Okay. Theatrically. I remember, I remember the box. I remember the VHS box was the big... And with the that... Shokasugi flying in the sky with the red yeah, sky. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this was actually designed by MGM. Mm-hmm. And and now we are talking, you know, they, they oh. really need a sequel because they make money. So, you know, because of some reason, Shokasugi did not... What did not uh, feature, he was in the, the third, the Ninja 3, the domination. He was not the, fe- the feature character, but Lucinda Dickey, it was a female ninja. And, and, uh, and then suddenly there was the craze of breakdance. So uh, Canon posed with, <laughs> with ninjas and they did breaking and breaking to Electric Boogaloo, which I directed again, a sequel. I directed a sequel. Mm-hmm. But the interest of the when I say the interest of the buyers around the world, maybe the viewers with the uh, with the break dance with the breaking was tapered, tapered off quickly, and the buyers wanted more ninja. They want ninjas. Mm-hmm. By now, everybody's making ninja movies, and uh, they call me back to the office. Mirachem Kolan, Kolan calls me to a meeting, and he says, "We need another ninja movie, but this time it's going to be American Ninja." So not my idea. <laughs> the phrase came from him. I don't know how he came up with this idea. Now, this is a revolution, actually a revolutionary and crazy, really crazy idea. Because Ninja is really unique. We already mentioned it's, it's very yeah. unique to Japanese character, uh, uh, culture. You can have a Brazilian martial art, but you don't have a Brazilian ninja. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> Capoeira, which is a Brazilian martial sure. art. 
there is a Chinese martial art, there is Korean martial art, but not ninja. Ninja is specifically Japanese. It's like samurai. And, it's like and samurai. part of the Japanese mythology. And, of course, of course. And as long as we, we made the, the ninja, the first three ninja movies with some connection to Japanese uh, culture, it was fine. Okay, but here he comes with the idea, forget about the Japanese. <laughs> forget about them. We're going to make American ninja, no connection to Japan whatsoever, to Japan culture. So it was his idea. There was no script. There was no nothing. This was only this idea. And, uh, you know, I, I was thrilled. Uh, I like Amer- American cinema. I, I believe that American cinema is the most successful. And, and this is as close as I will get to a, to a James Bond. To directing right. James Bond. I or see. directing a Western, American Ninja. So now I'm in the, <laughs> I'm about to do a Western or <laughs> James Bond. Now, you, so American Ninja did ex- extremely well. It blew. It, it was. It, it exploded, didn't it? And I, it, no, it killed at at, at the video stores. I mean, just killed. We we didn't know what's going to happen. You know, of course, as I said, for Canon film, for Canon, Breaking was a major, major money maker. The first Breaking and Breaking to Electric Willow were big. Uh, I mean, things. massive. You're talking about tens of millions of dollars. Yeah, Breaking was huge, and, and both of them were. Uh, I mean, MGM, the first breaking was distributed by MGM. The second, the one I directed, was distributed by TriStar, uh, Columbia TriStar. Right. So, so big distribution. So, so also Canon at this point is getting major distribution from because I know they had right. an output deal with Warner Brothers. That's how they and got then the, you know, and they were, Blood the Sport. You mentioned uh, Master of the Universe. They were flirting a little bit with the... Uh, uh, Spider-Man, not Spider-Man, with oh. Superman. Yeah, oh God, yeah, that's not, right. They did that canon Superman. I think they already they all they also already had the Chuck Norris on a contract. Uh-huh. Invasion USA, missing in action. So they already had Chuck Norris working for them, and they had Charles Bronson working for them exclusively at this point. That's which number two, that's which number three, that's which number four. <laughs> so yeah, so by then the company was big and and we are and they send us to the Philippines to make it. To Manila to make American Ninja, and you know we chose uh, Michael Dudikoff to be the American Ninja, the persona, the the, the 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 actor who will personify American Ninja, and we are there and we start to make the movie and we, we kind of realize you never know you know make while making a movie nobody knows if the movie will be a success will not be a success the audience will like it will hate it you don't know you're making it's enigmatic it's a it's a question big question mark when you make sure. a movie. But there was a good feeling. We saw Michael on the screen, the charisma, the relationship between Michael Dudikoff and Steve James. It was really, the bond was working on oh. the screen. Even the love story, Michael Dudikoff with Judy Aronson, and she came from Friday the 13th. So this was working well. And, and we put the movie together, editing room and music. And actually, they, they were so eager to continue the company that they sent us to new, before the movie was released. They send that to New Orleans with Michael Dudikov and Steve James and myself to make the movie Avenging Force, which was really meant for Chuck Norris, and he didn't want to do it. It was part of the Invasion USA mm-hmm. uh, uh, franchise, but he didn't want to. So we are now in New Orleans shooting this movie, filming this movie, uh, Avenging Force, and then the American Ninja came out in theaters. And then we hear, we kind of start to hear and read the explosion worldwide. I'm not talking about America. That this oh. is like, oh. 
the new Tarzan. <laughs> or, or this is the new mini James Bond. <laughs> right. No, this big, yeah, but wow, this whole idea, the, the, the concept, the phrase, American Ninja, and it's exploding all over the world. And we are there in New Orleans. The, the, the two actors did not even participate in any promotion, anything, because we were... Busy. It was just like, it was just like yeah, do, do your thing. Yeah, you just really... We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So it, yeah, it was it was huge immediately. Of course, there is a target audience. Those you yourself was you were the target audience. Sure, the young people, male, boys, teenager, or up to the age 35, 40. Uh, this was the mainly. Then, of course, there were also girls that like this. Uh, he, was, he was so handsome. Michael was mm-hmm. so handsome. <laughs> looked so good. And, but but it was a target market. It hit the market right, right on all over the world. What year, the world. what year was that? 85, 1985. Right. So right when, God, the VH, the video stores are exploding. There, I remember my first video store experience was 81, 82. And I, I rented, I think, no, it was actually later than that. Probably like 84. Uh, but I... But I rented Flashdance. I never forgot mm-hmm. it. Never forgot it. And we rented Flashdance. So around that time, it was starting to, it was starting to really take off. Blockbuster's still years away. So the mom and pop stores are still running everything. And and in the case of American Ninja, it was theatrical all over the world. Not yeah. Only video. Yeah. It played theatrically in Africa, in Asia, or in South America, all over the world. Suddenly, it was. If if before there was some kind of, a, you know, the audience, I'm trying to theorize here, the audience has to relate to Japanese uh, type of a culture. Now, from this moment on, they didn't have to. It was a James Bond, American Ninja. You know, it was Hollywood movie the way they like, you know, the, the way most of the action movies in the world look like. And uh, all American characters. It, it was a, a military in a, a military base, American military base. The story happened. So I guess it was easy for the audiences around the world, the young people, to identify uh, and, this character. Yeah, no, no question. And what I also always loved, I absolutely loved the chemistry between Michael and Steve James. I mean, the late great Steve James. What I mean, he was so charismatic. On, on camera. I, I just never forgot him. You know, I looked him up a few years ago and, and heard that he had passed and I was very saddened by it yeah. because he was, because I was looking, I'm like, you know, maybe I could use him. I would love to have him in one of my movies just to, you know, to show respect to to a hero of mine when I was a child. He, his chemistry was amazing. Was all that, like a lot of those lines in that stuff on set, was that him and Michael just kind of, you know, riffing? <laughs> So uh, yes, uh, yes, you're right. Uh, when we cast, when we ca- when we were in the casting of American Ninja, and uh, our main goal was to find this character, American Ninja, uh, Joe Armstrong, but also Jackson was already written in the script. Uh, his buddy, buddy, his sidekick was written in the script, and we we saw a lot of young people for both parts. But and uh, we had some hesitation with American Ninja with uh, Joe Armstrong because everything is on his shoulder. But let me tell you, when Steve James walked in for the casting and I spoke with him a little bit and he was a martial artist and, and we read a few lines, 
we didn't look anymore, and he agreed when he agreed to do it, we didn't look anymore for this Jackson character. This was Steve James. He was, you know, he walked in, he huge. was huge, big, muscles, the shoulders, <laughs> the way he looked like a Hercules. <laughs> and he was funny. He <laughs> was funny. Hercules. He was smart and funny. He was smart so, and uh, funny, too. So he had this, uh, this, you know, what you see eventually in the, on the screen. And, and when we, we got to the Philippines, they, they didn't have even a chance to meet each other, Michael Dudikov and Steve James, up to the point. Because in the low budget, we don't have rehearsals. We don't have money for rehearsals. And, mm -hmm. uh, they don't give us any rehearsal time. So the first time you meet the, your fellow actor or the director, many times with the actor, it's on the set the first time, the, the first day of shooting. So they met on the set. And, and they started, uh, you know, as the scenes were developing, I don't remember exactly the order that we were shooting the, the scenes, but the chemistry, the chemistry between them were developing on and on. Now, Steve was a big fan of action movies and, and almost, I would say, a historian of action movies, especially black action movies. You know, he had a big collection at home, Steve, like 2,000 movies. Uh, he was specializing oh, wow. in uh, black cinema, sure. even from the uh, either black directors, black actors, from black. the silent, from the silent oh, era. Wow. He was collecting movies. But anyway, he was, so this genre shaft, you know, he wanted to be the new shaft, Steve, basically. He could have so been. was very familiar to him. So back to your question, many of the, of the one-liners, many of the, mannerism he brought in but now let me tell you fun, something funny and good. every time you know i made few movies with steve james i directed a few times but then at some point he knew exactly in the script some point he tears off his shirt throws it away <laughs> so, <laughs> so, i had to show his muscles so i said steve you're not asking me you're not. every time in every movie at some point you take off your shirt and you continue he said, what do you think? Uh, you know how hard I'm working for those muscles? <laughs> All this hard work, I'm not going to show it off. I have to show it off. <laughs> I have to show off. <laughs> so then how many, and how many American ninjas were there? I think I, I remember it up to four. Was there more? Yeah, yeah. I, I directed only two of them. Okay. And then I directed with Michael and Steve the movie Avenging Force. Mm -hmm. And I directed with Steve James another movie, which was completely different movie, which was called Riverbend. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is not in the genre of the ninja, not even martial art. It's kind of... Uh, it's a racial tension movie in the South in the 60s. Oh, he must. Oh, that must have been awesome. It's a, it's a very, and he was the lead. He was very happy. But even then, he took, there was a little fight. He took off his shirt. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously. Listen, if I so looked like I, Steve I, James, uh, I, would, I would walk around I, without my I, shirt all the time. <laughs> I had the privilege to direct uh, uh, Steve James four times, four movies. Like I said, if I looked like Steve James, I would walk around without a shirt all the time. Uh, I mean, absolutely. There would be no question. Anyone listening, Google Steve James and you'll understand what I mean. Um, now, was the biggest hit for uh, for Canon American Ninja or was it breaking? No, I, I, I don't know exactly by number. Let's say they produced about 200, 300 movies. Jesus. The best, let's say the best from a quality point of view, the best movie was Runaway Train. Oh yeah! Most of people, most of people agree that it's the best movie they made was Runaway Train with Eric Roberts and John Voight. Uh, but in popularity, they had 
few kind of franchises that were doing very well. The American Ninja, the Death Wish, and the Missing in Action with Chuck Norris. Mm -hmm. So one, one, one franchise was the Charles Bronson, which was doing very well. One franchise was Chuck Norris, which was doing terrific. And the, the third one was American Ninja. Now, when the company, the company ended up with bankruptcy and a lot of um, uh, companies and uh, people and creditors came after, came to the court. Mm. <laughs> they, all, they probably owed money to everybody, uh, to a lot of uh, places. And, and the assets were divided. Uh, me, everybody wanted American Ninja. It's a, it's a good title. And eventually MGM uh, won the entire American Ninja series. And, uh, and the breakdance series went to MGM. So all the movies that I directed for Canon ended up with MGM. But some movies ended up with Warner Brothers, some ended up with the Paramount, and, and other creditors. Charles Bronson was a creditor. He, he, he was owed money. a lot of money. Jesus. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yes, but this was, uh, the, as a title, American Ninja is the best, the, the, you know, as a title. The title IP, American the IP, the, the IP. best thing that, that Canon had an, as an asset. Not necessarily the movies, but as a, as a title, asset. Yeah, the IP. Because Missing in action doesn't sound, it sounds good, but uh, it's okay. Or Death Wish, they did not originate, as you know, Death Wish was originated before Canon. Right, exactly. So then you did, um, so I remember when Break-In came out, because I was breakdancing as a kid back then, and Break-In was one, it was, it was Break-In and Beat Street. Those were the two big breakdancing movies that came out that, that, that those years. Then came out Break-In to The Electric Boogaloo, with I, which I argue is, Probably the best title for a sequel ever. Uh, there's, I mean, it is Electric Boogaloo. Anytime you're trying to make a joke, I'm like, oh yeah, we're gonna make Lethal Weapon Three, the Electric Boogaloo. Like you always throw Electric Boogaloo at the end of it. Who came up with Electric Boogaloo? Okay, the phrase Electric Boogaloo. There is a lot of discussion right. and a lot of uh, disagreement <laughs> and about this. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Now there is an essay. Somebody wrote an essay about <laughs> this phrase, "electric boogaloo," with the really research into history of where it comes. Now our two stars, Shabadu, also the late poor uh, Shabadu, also <laughs> passed away this year. Oh. And Shabadu and Michael Shrimps, both of them kind of claim that they have invented it, but it has a deep root way back in the fifties. Mm -hmm. from what I read in the article. So either uh, there was a, a boogaloo was a type of a dancing that goes all the way back to the 50s and to mm -hmm. the 60s. And uh, Shabadu was very active in uh, in the, what was it, the television show, the train, the, the soul train. Yeah. And in the soul train, there were a lot of boogaloo. The, there is a style of dancing that goes way back. Uh, how it was kind of uh, combined and, and a shrimp and, and the, the name of the uh, the street name of Michael Chambers. And so he's Michael Boogaloo Shrimp mm -hmm. Chambers. Michael Boogaloo mm -hmm. shrimp, shrimp Chambers. chambers. So Jeez. he kind of attached this, the word Boogaloo to his name. Uh, but the combination of those two words, electric Boogaloo, happened after the movie breaking. And so it's probably... Uh, in this, because they already knew that they want to make a sequel. 
Even but who can't, but who did it though? But who actually put it together for so, the movie? It was between Menachem Golan, Shabadu. I had nothing to do with it. When I was hired, when I was asked to do the movie, uh, to direct it, the, the name Breaking Two Electric Boogaloo was already on the script. So I have nothing to do with it. So every, every one of them, in many discussions, if you search the internet for interviews with the Shabadu, interviews with the Shreem, mm-hmm. with Michael Chandler, or written interviews, you will find many different versions. But, but they, 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 to the best of my knowledge, the legend, it, it happened in the Cannes Film Festival. When they were selling uh, Breaking, they took the three of them, uh, Lucinda and, uh, and Shabadu and Michael, took with them to Cannes to promote the movie. And as they saw that the, the response of the buyer, they immediately decided to do a sequel. And the legend, the story tells that right there in Cannes, it came together, this breaking two electric Google. I mean, so, I, I still remember now you're when right it... about that it became a, a meme of the 80s, a praise of the 80s, and it was borrowed to many, many different uh, purposes. Uh, including at some point uh, somebody put a joke, uh, we should write a uh, Bible to electric boogaloo. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, lately it took a sinister turn, you know, that it was adapted by the group, the Boogalows. That's right. White supremacy group. Right, right. They believe in a, in a, in a sequel of the uh, Civil War. Of course, so they, of they course. They took the, first they took the, the word. The they used to call it the second Civil War electric boogaloo, but then it was shortened to the Boogalows. The right uh, on a second in a second civil war. Oh my God! I know. Yeah, so so it, it, the whole gamut, you know, from dancing to comedy to this to to a sinister, sinister right wing, uh, yeah, white supremacy. And you know, and, and it's and it's interesting also because as artists, you just put things out there and you don't know how it's going to be received and who's going to take what, and and you just don't know as a, as a as a creator of these things, but. You know, I like to look at it, uh, that term electric boogaloo is a very funny, uh, you know, a joke that a lot of people kind of throw on, like the Bible to electric boogaloo and things like that, that it's just so, it's just one of those names that you you hear, you never forget it. You hear break it to the, like, you never forget it. Right. It has a good ring to it. It has a good sound. And, you know, when they made the uh, the sequel, they, when they made the, when they made the documentary about right. Canon. Right. So immediately they took the, the title of the movie of this of the documentary is Electric Google. Which exactly which summarizes everything Canon did. It, yeah. it, it in two words. It was it, it's remarkable. <laughs> now I do remember I never forgot this scene. Um and I know how you do it, but I'd love to I'd love to find out how you guys did it. How did Turbo dance on the ceiling? You know, when he was dancing up on the wall. I know it's generally a big giant thing. I've seen Chris Nolan do it, I've seen Stanley Kubrick do it. But generally, you don't have those kind of budgets. So how the heck did you guys do it? Okay. So uh, this was not on the original script. This dance, this scene, this dance was not on the original screen, a script. And uh, one day, even while I was shooting, we were shooting the movie in, in uh, East L.A., more in the uh, neighborhood, which is called Boyle's Heights, mm-hmm. which was the, the scene, the, the center of uh, hip hop and break dancing. Uh, I was called lunchtime, and I was called back to the office. The office, the offices were in Hollywood. And uh, Menachem Golan said, "Come back." I, I, I had no idea why I'm coming back. Maybe he wants to fire me. Maybe I don't know. But anyway, he had this idea. He said, "Let's have uh, uh, a shrimp dancing in the ceiling." Now, this is not a new idea. It yeah. was done by Fred Astaire. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Royal Wedding, the name of the movie. So that's the first time it was done. Then it was using Kubrick, Friday the 13th, many horror pictures. and mm-hmm. So basically, I knew what it is. It's a, The mechanism is called gimbal. Gimbal is kind of a simulator for flight simulator. Uh, you have the... the, the, the it, it, you know, there are uh, aerial photographers. So they, they actually, they practice in this gimbal. They put them on a seat, and then it's a two big, huge uh, hoops or rings, big one on rollers, and the, the, the chair is in the center, and then you can roll the, the, those big, uh, so the cinematographer is upside down, uh, or the, the pilot uh, in training is upside down. Now, if you take this huge, huge gimbal, this huge, uh, big uh, uh, rings, the two rings on rollers, and, and the set, the room is built inside. You know, the camera is uh, uh, glued to the floor of the of the set, or kind of hooked, not glued necessarily, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, uh, braced. And if you turn the room around, the, the camera does not see the turning around because the camera goes around with the room. So the, for the cameraman, the room is always the straight. Same, looks straight. But a dancer, you know, once you're 90 degree, let's say the cameraman is to the right or to the left, the dancer is already on the wall. But the wall is horizontal to, to earth. Mm-hmm. And when it is all the way up, it's upside 180 down. degree, the cameraman is all up, all the way up, and the ceiling now is down. And he's dancing in the ceiling. But the camera doesn't see the difference. What you do need, everything has to be glued to the set. So all the, fo- the pictures on the wall... Uh, Everything, Everything, all the books on the shelf, like behind you, you have books mm-hmm. on the shelf. They have to be glued because when it's up, they, upside down, you don't want all the book to, to fall and, in. Uh, and if there is some scenery in the window, the scenery has to move in the window with the, with the gimbal. And all the lighting, you cannot have a change of light. So the lighting, everything moves together with this uh, rotating. And, and that's how it's done. And, you know, it was done in... Uh, a lot in horror pictures. This partic- I think that we got our particular gimbal from uh, Elm Street. Or from- yeah, well, yeah, I was going to say, what I was going to say, Wes Craven, because I know he did it for um, the blood, the blood coming out of the bed. Okay. They so flipped we, it. They just re- it, was, uh, le- it was somewhere around in a warehouse in Hollywood. And they oh, rented- they rented it. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Then, yeah. But it's the a- set was built. Our art department built, built the set. Sure, sure. And we hired a special cinematographer. You need a aerial cinematographer because when they're upside down not <laughs> not to get confused uh, they are the aerial photo cinematographers they 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 are used to this turning around upside down and etc i have so, to ask i have i have to ask you uh, thank you for that because I, I mean i always wonder like they didn't have 10 million dollars to build something like this but i didn't think that they just had a couple of these lying around in la because in la there's everything uh, i yeah, even yeah, yeah. Sh- I shot I shot a, a television series. And our on a... operation, Alex, our operation was so cheap that it was turned by hand. We didn't have motors. <laughs> so yeah, some grips. The grips just kept pulling on those huge ring and by hand, you know, manually. They no, I mean, the room. <laughs> people always ask, like, should I move to LA? I'm like, look, you know, I just moved away from LA. Uh, I love LA, but in LA, you, I mean, I there's a standing spaceship set that I shot a whole series on. That we just, it's just a standing set that looks like aliens. It's there. You you can't find that in Ohio. (laughs) 
you know, naturally, the industry, you know, you, you have to deal with cars, you go to Detroit. I mean, it's natural. The, 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 I, I, I worked all over the world. I, I worked on films all over the world. And there is, from a convenient point of view, from a technical point of view, and from personal, from people point of view, uh, expertise, there is no place in the world like Hollywood for make, making films. I'm not talking maybe Hong Kong, of course, in Hong Kong, in China. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But uh, London, but there's nothing like Hollywood. The gen- the, you have a generator goes down, within 10 minutes you have another generator on the set immediately. Easily. Somebody will find another generator in, in 10 minutes and it will be on the set and, and working. Uh, you need this special lens, crazy lens. Done. Somewhere it is, somewhere for rent. Within or, five or 10 minute drive. Props, yes. set, uh, wardrobe. Obviously, this is the center of this, in- this type, this industry. This is- yeah, it's, yeah, it's the central point in the world for the for Western movie making is uh, Hollywood. Absolutely. So everything is here. You're right. Now, what is the craziest story that you can say publicly <laughs> from your times in Canon? The truth is, the truth is, nothing extraordinary happened on the on any of the sets that I worked. Not not a serious injury obviously nothing you know fatal nothing happened no no a serious we were so careful and so methodic in working and and um, and nothing crazy happened while filmmaking but let me tell you an interesting story that okay. relates and does not re- relates and uh, no we were in the philippines in manila shooting american Indian. And uh, we stayed in a nice hotel, Manila Hotel in, in Manila. This was the biggest hotel, the most beautiful. And Sunday we were not shooting, and we were not working. We are on the, in the swimming pool. Most of the time we're in the swimming pool. So one of those Sundays, I am, you know, the, the crew is in the swimming pool. And next to me, Michael Dudikoff. And we are kind of laying on those chairs in the sun and enjoying. And Michael is next to me. I am here. Michael is next to me. Suddenly. I realize that something is wrong. There is a woman frantically running on the edge of the pool. And I look down and I see a girl that what seems like a girl that like still like going up and down, like she's drowning. And I look up and there was a lifeguard, but he was completely busy. His attention was completely in another direction. Jesus. So I hit Michael right away. Michael was right next to me. (laughs) Michael. Jump with me into the pool, no question. So we both jump into the pool and we dove all the way to, by then the girl was all the way in the water and what we could see her. So, and nobody sees only this woman, which apparently was the mother and nobody else. It was just a moment that nobody was paying attention to what's happening in the water. And Michael and me were diving all the way down to the bottom. We, we grabbed the girl, we bring there both of us put her on the edge, by then she's not breathing anymore. <laughs> so I'm trying or whatever crew to do whatever we, we do, but you know, I'm not a medic, I don't know what I'm doing, and uh, pushing and uh, breath, resuscitation. But then comes a oh, young man, he says, I'm a soldier, I'm a medic, move, move over everybody, let me, I'm the only one 
in charge here right now. He was one of the soldiers, the American soldiers. At the time, there were many, many American soldiers in uh, the Philippines. He took over. He knew what he was doing much better than us. Resuscitation, push the, uh, on the chest. Water came out. Boom, she came back. Ah. And, uh, and uh, that's it. The girl came back, back to life, let's say. And, uh, you know, we visited her. It was very exciting, very emotional, you know, to bring somebody <laughs> from the dead back to life. Uh, she was, uh, her family was actually Chinese from Hong Kong. They were visiting and vacationing over there. And uh, uh, later on, I, I was in Hong Kong and I visited, visited with the family. But there are a nice picture of Michael and me with the girl a day later, you know, with this girl. And. And I, I consider it pretty crazy for uh, that we were there shooting American Ninja at the right moment in the hotel, in the right the day off, and yeah. uh, to save somebody's life. So I consider it maybe the purpose of American the movie American Ninja was actually to save a girl. Right. So so American Ninja actually saved the the American Ninja actually saved her. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Now, let me ask you. You didn't have that. You know, when we went to South Africa, mm -hmm. we were talking about the explosion of American Ninja. And then we were shooting a, a, a Night Hunter, which became Avenging Force in New Orleans, all of us. And as we came back and uh, we finished the editing, they already, by then, they needed a sequel to American Ninja badly because American Ninja was a huge hit all over the world. And they needed badly. And for some reason, they had this time they had some money in, in South Africa. So apartheid South Africa, it was toward the end of apartheid, but still apartheid. And, and Steve was pretty worried. He said, well, I'm a black person. I'm going now to South Africa. What's it? But he told me, anyway, you're going ahead of me. You're a pre-production. Call me. And I want to, go to hear from you every day. Call me every day. Tell me what it is in South Africa. Nobody knows. Mm -hmm. We went to South Africa, and this was really the, the ending days of the apartheid. Actually, mm -hmm. when I was there, there used to be three different identi identi identification cards, different IDs for different races, but by then they uh, unified it to one card. There were no more different cards with different colors. Uh, so I, you know, I, told, I, I called Steve, I spoke with Steve a few times, and there's Steve, nothing to worry about, it's changing, the atmosphere is really changing, there is no more uh, white beach, black beach, it's, it's changing, you know, really changing. Come up. So he came over, and the first week, and in the weekend, we went out in Johannesburg to the street. Now, we didn't realize how big they became, Michael Dudikoff and Steve James became huge stars to the kids, to... Mm -hmm. They were recognized everywhere. We, we couldn't walk in the street anymore wow. because all the young African kids were running after them, especially Steve that was tall and impressive. And, and you know, probably for them, they saw this uh, hero. black hero, not only, you know, the African-American hero. For them, it was something special. <laughs> and they ran with everywhere we went with Steve James, it was impossible in the streets of Johannesburg. Wow. God, that's amazing. <laughs> well, let me ask you. So I, I ask, I'm going to ask you a few questions to ask all my guests. Yeah. What is, what advice would you give a filmmaker trying to, to make it in today's business? Uh, what I see to, what I see today, uh, let's say action, more action, because, uh, you know, there are always place for drama, personal movies you can always make. 
And as you mentioned, technology is cheap. All you need is a computer, camera, uh, put the editing program in your computer, and you can make a movie. So all those uh, personal movies like Moonlight, or well, those movies will always be done. People, want, Young people who want to tell a story and express themselves, they, they will do it. The question comes now when you want to make a more expensive movie. When you want to make an action movie, it's not cheap. Making action movie is not cheap. And uh, there, are, there are explosions, there are mechanical, there are cars, chases, etc., etc. And what, what happened from a business point of view that uh, the movies went through transformation in the 2000s, etc., they became paperback movies. <laughs> It was expensive to make movies. You needed a lab, you needed a camera, you needed to buy film, you needed to print the film. Everything was expensive. So you couldn't make a very, very, very cheap movie. And you couldn't make movie you needed at least to, to be near a lab to develop the film, at least. And this has changed a lot. Uh, it's cheap now, you don't need the lab. So the cost of production has shrunk. The buyer, the potential buyer, television stations, streaming uh, services, whoever buy those small independent movies, they got used. Now they can pay less money to buy the movies. You know, so now if a uh, if, uh, movie, they used to buy a movie for $1 million, a young filmmaker that just finished the movie, can, uh, you can have my movie for 80000 I don't need $1 million. I will cover my cost if I sell it to you, 80 and I sell it to some German television, etc. Very quickly, I will cover my cost. So the buyer got used to buy cheap movies. Now, when it comes to make an action movie, and you need this eight weeks or nine weeks of shooting, hmm. you need the six million today, equivalent, four million. The buyers say, we don't have, don't make this action movie. I don't care. If you're not making Spider-Man, if you're not making a superhero, huge event movie, don't make this movie. I will buy the small movie, the, the cheap horror movie. I will buy the, the, the cheap dramas. So the sources have dried. The money have dried to make an action movie. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And despite the fact that it's, it's, uh, it's cheaper, technologically cheaper, but still you need the money. And, and there is no money around. Uh, so uh, producers who want a young director to do action movies, they're asking them to do it for one million today money, four weeks shooting, and it's not really action movie. So this is a tough, tough, tough area when you deal with uh, action or sci-fi stuff that needs special effects. This is one area. The, the, the saving grace is the uh, digital effects. Uh, graphic digital effect. We did not have it. We had to, or they were very, very, very expensive. Mm -hmm. So we had to physically produce everything. Every fight, every chase, every car. Blood hit, every. Had to really physically be done. We had to flip cars. Today, with some ingenuity and some knowledge, you can flip a car in your computer. You don't have to flip a car (laughs) anymore. And you can have a huge explosion for no money. Etc. So those two forces, which are really wor- not working, either working against each other or complementing each other, 
less money, much less money, but the technology uh, of the CGI, of the uh, graphic, uh, computerized graphic uh, special effect help. So they have to navigate this area. They also, the young filmmakers, again, in action, they come up from a different background. We came from a background of, as I say, Western James Bond, Tarzans, and the young uh, filmmakers are coming from the background of uh, video games. Sure. Not from movies. Their, back, their visual background, the visual way they see things is the, the way they saw it when they play video games when they were kids. Right. Fast pace, great special effect, uh, very grand stuff. So, so those are the, the things that have changed. And uh, But you can prove yourself by having a computer and camera. Fair enough. Two young people can buy a camera. They can buy a supercomputer. Or they can just buy <laughs> or this. Right now, the phone. <laughs> the phone Absolutely. will do it. Then it shoots it shoots 5K or 8K now. Who knows? It's insane. Right, right. Uh, um, now, what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film industry or in life? Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the longest, uh, but in the movie, in if you take the movie business mm-hmm. as an analogy to life, you know, okay. <laughs> right? okay. You... I say I would say as a you know director. Director is the chief guy. He's at the top of the pyramid. He makes the decision uh, and he uh, delegates the, the the tasks to everybody. So he's at the top of the pyramid. So I've learned. I, I think the most important is really you have to be humble. You have to humble yourself. There is nothing you do by yourself. This is the the biggest bluff in the world. I mean, unless you're an animator and you sit at home for three years by yourself and you make a movie animation, you use a lot of talent. The director, the the creator of any, this type of uh, movie, it's not not painting, you're not in your your studio by yourself painting. You need a lot of help and a lot of talent and, and, and only with the help, only with the, with uh, harnessing all those different talents into your talent as the director, as the storyteller, something, the magic will happen. So in my case, my success, you know, the movies that have been successful, uh, American Ninja, Electric Boogaloo, they happened because many people contributed to it. The performers, the the art director, the the cinematographer, and all of this together was channeled through my, uh, my, talent or my abilities or whatever you want to call it to create what you've created. And I think it's also true in life. You, you don't go alone by yourself. <laughs> you are not a loner. I can tell it now. I'm 70 years old and uh, look back. You don't go alone by yourself if you don't have uh, a support by friends and family, etc. Very that, true. That's probably it. Now, and what are three of your favorite films of all time? Films of all time? Three. Uh, I'll tell you. I. I. Um, of all, it's hard to say. There, there are so many films. Just three that, films three that come to mind. But uh, I love Akira Kurosawa's movies. When I was introduced to this Japanese genre of action, Yojimbo, Seven oh. Samurai, I was struck in awe. You know, like wow. <laughs> it's amazing. But uh, you know. I was influenced a lot when I was young by Hitchcock movies, you know, watching uh, John Ford and uh, uh, etc. 
I'm not great fan of horror pictures. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, uh, those are the type of movies. Uh, let's say the most impressive are the movies of uh, uh, David Lean. Oh, I mean, Doctor yeah. Zhivago, Lawrence of Arabia, big vast movies, Giant. huge big movies, and. Uh, and those are really the movies uh, that I really like. There is a big vastness to it. Uh, some action, great drama, uh, human character. drama yeah. uh, unfold within the movie, the story of the movie, and uh, etc. There's very few directors in today's world that gets to play on that ca- that kind of canvas. You know, yeah. the, the James Camerons, the Steven Spielbergs, yeah. the you know the Chris Nolans of the world. They get to play in these ch- giant, giant canvases um, because it's so darn expensive to play on those on those canvases but uh but it's remarkable but sam listen i, I want to thank you for coming on the show it has been an absolute honor and, pl- and pleasure talking to you and going back down the nostalgia lane talking about canon and your amazing work you did back in the 80s and 90s i appreciate you my friend and thank you for helping make my my childhood a little bit more interesting and entertaining so i do it i appreciate you my friend yeah, well, first of all, you're very welcome, and I, I was happy to be and talk with you, and I hope that the listeners will enjoy what we, we talked about. I want to thank Sam so much for coming on the show and sharing his journey with the tribe. It was a treat. Now, if you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 269. Thank you so much for listening, guys. As always, keep on writing no matter what. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at BulletproofScreenwriting.tv. 